Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. We are talking to Dr Chris Skinner from the University of Hull. Chris is a research fellow in the Energy and Environment Institute and works specifically on computer modelling, flooding and geomorphology. In today's podcast, we aim to run a Q&A session on the big debates in geomorphology at the moment. Thanks for joining us today, Chris. In a recent blog post for European Geosciences Union, you described your day as... I assess the sensitivities of the numerical models to different sorts of uncertainty. My working day is generally spent looking at a pair of screens, at computer models or lines of code. What is it you do exactly? Uh, well, thank you for inviting me. Um, yeah, I think that blog post, my, my job role has changed quite uh, a bit since um, I wrote that blog post, partly because of the, the current lockdown. So I spend a lot of my day now looking at Zoom or Microsoft Teams. Um, but I have numerous different parts of my role. So, um, my, my research field does, my, my geographic research field does cover, um, several different, um, areas. So I've looked at meteorology, I've looked at hydrology, hydraulics, um, science communication and disaster risk preparedness. But really my, my main research field is geomorphology. But what all my research has in common is I've been using computer models to simulate the environment and to understand in particular what those computer models can tell us, but probably more importantly, what, what they can't tell us, what's the information that they give from us that we, we can't really rely on for making decisions or predicting the future. As a University of Hull research fellow, you've worked in modelling flood risk, as you've just said. Um, is that specifically around the Humber estuary um, and why is that important? Uh, yeah so um, my first job role out of um, when I came out of my PhD was working for a project um, developing a model for the Humber estuary um, so we the aim was to develop a model which could not only just predict the tides and the water levels around the Humber accurately but also how the sediments within the estuary moved around so the sand the muds and the clays and how that would develop in the future, which might impact things like um, how we get shipping in and out of the, the estuary, but also impacts on flood risk. Right in the middle of that project, we had the um, storm surge of December 5th, 2013, um, which flooded hundreds of properties around the estuary. And kind of we we plugged in the data from from the, uh, the tidal gauges after that event into our model, and we found we could actually get a reasonable estimate of the flood extents, sort of the areas where it flooded around the estuary using our model. Um, so that led us to work with the Environment Agency. So our model is a particularly kind of, it's a very simple model. It's, it's called reduced complexity. So we, we strip out a lot of the complexity um, we see in the environment to kind of get the model to run really, really quick. So this allows us to do really rapid assessments of kind of what flood defenses might work and what flood defenses um, are probably not worth um, exploring in more detail. Um, so we've developed our model since then to kind of to look rapidly um, at, at, look rapidly at these kind of flood risk issues and 
where the best places are to place defences. That work was focused on the Humber estuary, but I've got other colleagues now who are kind of adapting that to, to other estuaries around the UK and worldwide as well. I have a friend's dad who works as a Humber captain who specialises in bringing the, the big boats and the oil tankers um, into the Humber estuary because of those those shifting um, sands that you mentioned. And apparently it's incredibly dangerous and very high skilled. Absolutely. The Humber pilots um, do a, a fantastic job and the some of the the sediment processes, the changes that happen in the um, in the estuary can happen really quickly. So there's a there's a, a particular spot which is kind of um, where we in an estuary we call it the turbidity maximum, which is where the kind of the river flows going into the sea and the tidal flows coming from the sea meet and kind of interact with each other the most. And this area is kind of just just west of the Humber Bridge between North and South Ferriby. And I've heard stories of Humber pilots where they've they've taken shipping in through one lane overnight, and the next day after a storm, they've gone to take the ships back out, and they have to use a different channel because the sands and things have shifted so much. They've also told me tales of where boats have got stuck in the mud, and they've literally watched the mud pile up several uh, meters along the side of boats rapidly as the tides go out. So it's it's a really shifting complex environment which can make it very dangerous for 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 um for navigating shipping around the estuary but the pilots have that sort of intimate knowledge of how the estuary works and it underscores of course how important computer modeling is absolutely um like our our model is not complex enough to kind of look at those kind of short-term changes in the sediments but there are really more complex models that can run that um but yeah, the, it, it's really important we do understand how these processes happen now, but how they're going to change in the future. Obviously, with um, climate change and sea level rise, that's going to change these processes um, in places like the Humber Estuary. Mm. You're also the vice chair for outreach and education in the British Society for Geomorphology. Um, what uh, work does that entail? Yeah, so... Um, so we have a committee for um, for outreach and education within the British Society of Geomorphology. Everybody who serves on committee posts within the society are volunteers. So I'm a volunteer um, to do that. And within our committee, where our, our role is to kind of promote geomorphology as a science, um, both to the public and to as kind of its its benefits to society and its impacts on society but also within education at all levels, so from primary to secondary school and within universities where we work as well. So my role as vice chair is to kind of oversee that committee uh, and to make sure we have a strategy in place for what we're going to do and how we're going to deliver that. And in particular, what I've really been trying to focus on is, is helping the membership of the society. So we have about 600 members worldwide who all want to promote geomorphology. So we want to help them to to do that and we have um, several different ways we can do that so we run a grant scheme where we can provide a reasonably small amount of money to help people kind of produce activities or produce educational materials 
But we also run things like the Marjorie Sweeting Award, which is an award for the best undergraduate dissertation in geomorphology for that year, which are nominated by the their lecturers. So we kind of we we gather in all the applications for that and we judge them and we dis determine the winner of that award every year. Before we launch into the Q&A, Chris, I wonder whether we should just define what geomorphology is. It's, it's a big part of geography, but I, I suspect that some people don't know what the term actually means. Yeah, I think um, most people will have come across, if, they, if they've studied physical geography at school, they would have come across geomorphology. And it's really, it's the, it's the science of landscapes. So there's kind of a, a static side of it. So it's understanding how our landscapes got to be, how they are at the moment and what processes and what the history of, of those landscapes developing are. But there's also a dynamic element to it, which is understanding the processes that change our landscapes. So things like erosion and deposition and transport of sediment and muds in rivers and estuaries uh, with glaciers or wind-driven processes within deserts that form dunes and understanding how our landscapes are going to change in the future as well. So you opened the big debate on Twitter with our very own head of education and outdoor learning, Steve Brace, asking, what is the driver of change uh, for different landscapes? Is it little and often, or is it big and infrequent in these dynamic landscapes that, that you've mentioned? Yeah, so... Um... So actually, Steve Brace um, is a member of our committee. So he advises um, the society through our committee on behalf of the Royal Geographical Society. Um, and he actually proposed this idea of the big debates. So I think he highlighted to us that there's a, often a perception that science is settled, that we understand everything that's happening. And we and as geomorphologists, we I think there's a perception out there that people understand that, that people think we understand exactly what what these processes do and how things change. And actually, that's not true. Um, there are still a lot of big ongoing debates in geomorphology of things we just don't know, and we don't have the tools to really understand them uh, properly at the moment. So he proposed that we, we run this big debate idea um, aimed at kind of classroom teachers um, and and school groups to kind of become a provocation of a, a kind of a point around which to to hang a debate and to get a conversation going within those environments. So we, we, we put out this call on Twitter. We tried to engage all the geomorphic uh, researchers we could find on Twitter to get involved in this debate, and we, we identified what the big debates were. Uh, and one of them was, um, how do our landscapes change? And I think... There is a, there is, um, when many people think of how landscapes change, I think they think they change by lots of really small processes happening over and over and over again that build up over very long times, which result in our landscapes changing. And in many places, that's true. That is, that is what's happening. Um, but in a lot of places, actually, that isn't what happens. And actually, you have an awful lot of change, a massive amount of change happening in a very short of time very short time so um some of the people coming in, in our debate were kind of highlighting some of those changes so the most extreme example we had was a meteorite impact so a meteorite impact is a geomorphic process is process it changes the landscape 
and it happens over seconds and it completely changes the landscape um, within that time scale. So that is a, a really good example of something which is really big, but very infrequent and has a large impact on the landscape. The opposite side pointed out that actually, if you looked at the Earth's surface, um, we don't see a lot of meteorite, uh, these, Im these impact craters. And that's because those slow processes um, of erosion and weathering have gradually worn them down and removed them from, from the planet's surface. So if we're going to have this debate of which one is the most important to, for shake, shaping our landscape, it's quite difficult to determine because on one hand, we've got these processes which do change things rapidly. On the other hand, we've got these other processes which wear them down and remove all the traces of them. I think one of the interesting points that came up in the debate was actually if we're going to use computer models to um, to to understand how our landscapes changed, we actually find that representing these processes as really little and often works really well in our models. And we can get a result which looks like a realistic landscape. But actually, when we look at some of the examples of how these these form, they're actually formed by big infrequent changes, but you've averaged them out over time and you create these landscapes. So our models are kind of showing something correct, but getting there through the wrong processes. And a, a good example of this could be um, could be flooding. So you could have a river which doesn't change a lot for decades, even centuries, but then you get a big, a really heavy convective thunderstorm which would fall on the, the upper part of that catchment. And you can get this kind of flash flood wave that comes crashing through the river valley and picks up all sorts of different materials and kind of bulldozes its way down that environment and completely changes it in the matter of just a few hours. And then over, gradually over years, it will kind of redevelop into that stable landscape it was before. So when we're looking at it over that kind of long time period, it looks like it's only changed very, very slowly. But when we kind of zoom in into shorter timescales, we can actually see that, that most of that change happened within the few hours of a single event. So it's so this debate was kind of a, an unanswered one. Um, and I think actually probably it's somewhere in between. Our landscapes change for a mixture of processes which are both big and infrequent but also little and often. And there's also debate, Chris, about how landscapes and landforms are created. Uh, one of your questions was, is a valley there first before a river flows? Or is it the other way around? And I saw online that you wrote, it's the classic geomorphological chicken and egg scenario. Yeah, absolutely. So if we look at rivers as they are now, once they develop, you, you can see that they follow the kind of path of least resistance. So they're, they're driven by gravity. So they're going to move downhill and generally they'll just find the lowest point to kind of flow to. Um, if we imagine a, 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 if we started from a completely blank landscape with no features and no gradients, so there's no gravity acting on that water and we put water on it, it would just sit still. So you have to have some form of, um, some form of uh, deviation, some form of change in your landscape to actually allow the water to flow in the first place. Um, 
But without those processes of erosion and deposition, the river is not going to form the valley. It's not going to form its channel to actually flow through. So it's kind of this. So there is this kind of feedback between the river and the landscape where as the water flows, it changes the landscape, but the landscape itself is decided is determining where the water is going to flow. So what actually kicks off that process is in a valley um, is, is exactly that. It's that classic geomorphological chicken and egg. What came first, the valley or the river? Because the river needs something to form around, um, but it will also reinforce and change uh, change the landscape as it's flowing. Are these geomorphological understandings applicable for other planets in our solar system? Absolutely. So, um, one of the things we've done uh, with the British Society of Geomorphology is we, we, we kind of added in planetary surfaces rather than the Earth's surface into our description of what geomorphology is, because a lot of the learning that we've done on, on, on Earth, we can apply to different planets. So, um, so in the debates videos, we actually talk about impact craters on the moon and on Mars. And why we why we we see so many impact craters on those surfaces, but we don't on the Earth, and that's because of the the different atmospheres on those planetary bodies. Obviously, the Moon doesn't have an atmosphere at all, so there's no weathering going on um, on the on the Moon's surface. Mars has slightly less um, because the, it it does have an atmosphere, and there and there there is some weathering. But actually, Mars is a really fascinating example because as geomorphologists when we look at the surface of mars we see evidence of water liquid water all over the place so we see river channels we see things which might have been seas um we had a phd student sergio duran who kind of looked at nick points which are things which you get as river channels retreat through changes of sea level and found these at certain altitudes all over the Martian surface, indicating that there were seas at one point on the planet. Not any time recently, billions of years ago, but um, because there's no weathering on the surface, these these features remain. And we see river channels, we see meanders, um, we see all sorts of features which indicate that the Martian surface was once very geomorphically active and driven by liquid water. So it's, it's really exciting and it really begs the question of of where's that water gone? Has it kind of just evaporated off into space or is it buried in kind of uh, frozen layers of ice below rock on the on the planet? It's, it's an ongoing question, which I think is really exciting to try and answer. Are humans a geomorphological agent? Um, I know that on Twitter, you, you brought that up as an, another one of your debates uh, to do with mm. the unnatural level of soil that we we put into our rivers is that right absolutely um humans are a, a geomorphological agent in in my opinion i think there is a debate around this but um it's all linked to the kind of debate around the anthropocene um which i imagine a lot of people will have will have seen which is about are we entering a new geological age where the biggest influencer on the earth's landscape is actually humans um and not natural processes so, if, so, so in that, and if you're changing the landscape, you become a, a geomorphological agent. So, when um, if if 
anyone was looking at the geological record for this period in millions of years' time, they will just see the imprint of, of, of human civilization overriding almost everything else within that record. And the way we shape our landscape is being largely driven by our action. And, and yeah, absolutely, there's, um, soil erosion is a big contemporary issue. Um, and it's something which um, people are working with farmers with to kind of look at how we can manage the land in, a, in, in ways um, to actually reduce that runoff um, into rivers. So soil has a real, a great economic value to us. We, we absolutely rely on good fertile soil to be able to grow food. And the, the soil layer around the world, world is exceptionally thin. So if we're losing soil, then we're losing our ability to grow food in the future. And DEFRA, so the Department for Environment, uh, Food and Rural Affairs, predicts that in the UK, 2.2 million tonnes of soil is washed from the land and into rivers, which will eventually go into the sea every year, um, which is a huge issue. We, we really need to get that down. And I think... Um, particularly post-Brexit, where we're getting encouraged to, to eat more locally produced food and, and, and British food. I think it's really important that we, main, we keep that kind of, the, keep British soil British, um, to put it into a kind of a Mr. Johnson-style term. One of the last debates that you've uh, brought online, Chris, is over uh, global warming mm. um, in relation to geomorphology. What impact will global warming have on our landscape of the UK? So in the UK, it's, it's, it's quite a complex picture because we're, I think overall we're looking at um, a, a reduction in the, the, the amount of rainfall that we're going to get. But we're going to get more of that rainfall in heavier storms. So the type of storms we're seeing, like Storm Christoph, which we just it recently had just before we recorded this podcast, um, those types of events are going to become more frequent and they're going to become heavier. And also the kind of the storms we get in the summer because those thunderstorms. So the extra heat we're going to have in the atmosphere because of climate change is going to make those thunderstorms more powerful and happen more often. And that means that there's going to be more water getting into our systems through these sort of events. And the relationship between how much water flow goes through a river and how much and its ability to move material in there is not a linear one. So if you, if you double water flows, you don't double the amount of sediment it moves. You actually vastly increase the amount of sediment it moves. So a small increase in water flows results in much bigger changes in the amount of material that a river can carry and its ability to change the landscape. So we're, we're, we're heading into really unknown territory um, in regards to climate change and our impacts on our landscapes and we could end up seeing uh, our landscapes becoming a lot more dynamic as a result of climate change and this is going to have a lot this is going to have wider impacts so again it's it's going to have wider impacts on that soil erosion which unless we find ways to manage that is going to increase it's also going to change our rivers and change the the way material is moved around in our rivers and that's going to have impacts on flood risk um, so flood risk is going to increase anyway because of the the uh, changes in storms that we're going to have in the UK. But this could be, again, it's one of those positive feedbacks 
This could be made worse by the fact that there's going to be more material being moved from the uplands and deposited in the lowlands, which will then reduce the capacities of our rivers. And our rivers are going to want to move more as well, which means we're either going to have to make space for them or we're going to have to build bigger and stronger walls to kind of uh, restrain them within their channels. And finally, Chris, how do you communicate the importance of geomorphology? Yeah, so I have a, a project called the Serious Geogames Lab, which is um, which is it's kind of set up to kind of look at the um, similarities between kind of video games and the the computer models that we use to represent the environment, because a lot of the kind of the underlying kind of the code, the the physics and things that those the two things use are very similar. Um, but also games are a very good way to, to engage people. They're fun and people like playing them. So we, so with geomorphology, as it's quite a, a dynamic thing, we want to show people how things change. And using things like games and virtual reality, we can do that. Um, so we have one virtual reality activity called Flash Flood. This actually uses um, survey data we actually collected from a river. Um, we were fortunate enough to have a survey before a great big flash flood kind of bulldozed through the river valley. So we could go back again and survey it again and see exactly how that river valley changed. And we visualized that through, um, through virtual reality using video game technology to provide an environment people could walk around. So you put the headset on, you grab an Xbox controller and you can walk around this environment and see what it's like. And then we start the storm and we take you through the kind of six hours of this storm event that changed the valley, but in the space of about four minutes. And we show them the, the kind of the, the flood wave, that flash flood wave that came through the river valley filled with mud and rocks and trees and all sorts of things it's picked up. Um, so they can see just how dramatic that sort of event would be if they were in that river valley. And then afterwards, we show them how the river valley has changed. So they can walk around again and they can see for themselves exactly how that river valley has changed within that short space of time. So we try and use activities like this. Um, we'll take them when we were able to, we would take them into festivals and events and into schools um, to show people and just to start that conversation with them about the importance of geomorphology and the value of computer models to help us understand how things will change in the future. And Finally, Chris, just for people to be able to access all these great things, if geographers who are listening or geomorphologists want to engage in the debate, am I right in saying your Twitter handle is at BSG underscore geomorph? Yep, that's the, the, that's the Twitter handle for, for the society. If they want to talk to me individually, my Twitter handle is at Flood Skinner. And the, uh, the, serious geo games that you were just talking about about the flash flood um activity how could people access that yeah so um obviously the the, the main flash flood activity is a virtual reality activity and i think we're it's going to be a long time before we can start putting um, headsets on on people and and changing them around um but we do have kind of 360 video versions on our youtube channel um, so you can search Serious Geogames on YouTube. You'll be able to find all our videos on there. Or if you visit our website, which is just seriousgeo.games, um, you'll be able to find all our activities and things on there as well. Great. Thank you so much for joining us today, Chris. It's been really interesting to hear about all your projects. Uh, thank you for the invite. It's been a pleasure talking to you. 
Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.